Hello everybody! So today we're going to talk about digital sentience. Can digital computers ever wake up? And I actually expect this to be one of the most controversial videos in this channel. Um, I even expect it to be kind of a little bit emotional for some of you guys because <laughs> some of what I will say in a sense may even tackle, you know, kind of some load-bearing beliefs for, I don't know, worldview and perhaps even one's place in the world. <laughs> so apologies in advance if it has that effect, you know, I, it's, it's not it's not intended effect, but it might be a, a side effect of this discussion. So um, I, I will basically uh, partition this talk into roughly three segments. The first one is <laughs> essentially establishing my credibility and talking a little bit about kind of my philosophical journey uh, so that you have some context and background about like okay who I am and like why should you listen to what I have to say <laughs> on this topic. Uh, the second one is going to be kind of like a classical issues uh, in philosophy of mind, uh, classic thought experiments and you know why they may push us in one direction or another and the final component is kind of a much more you know, QRI, Quality Research Institute themed uh, discussion about this issue where I will be, yeah, going over some of the arguments that we have presented and basically the lens that we use. And in the end, I will conclude with, uh, yeah, some remarks about the, the big picture, basically how we actually see everything fitting together in a way that truly makes sense. And I think actually solves a lot of these, you know, classic, classic issues in philosophy of mind. Uh, but before I get started, the quilia of the day is the intentional stance. So <laughs> this is uh, Leona. Uh, she's been featured in some, you know, qualia computing <laughs> articles in the past. Um, so here's the fascinating thing, right? Like if I tell you like, oh, she just got a promotion at her job. She's so happy. You know, like telling you that sort of thing. <laughs> you may even notice kind of like you're creating these like, um, you're, you're spawning little toy models of kind of the interior mental life of Leona, you know, by telling you some properties uh, about her. Uh, or if I tell you, no, like she's uh, really, really angry at Link because like Link, Link didn't invite him to, I don't know, his birthday party <laughs> or something like that. Uh, but no, you know, actually they're really good friends. And uh, plus, you know, they appear in the article, why are heading done right? So uh, they're pretty happy, pretty happy folks. But you see, um, we create kind of these, um, you know, free-floating mental models all the time, and then we assign them to quote-unquote agents within our world simulation, and that feels like something. It really has, really has an effect. Um, and uh, I had like a, a very early acquaintance with this kind of a phenomenon. I remember like one of the, my very earliest memories was um, in uh, Euro Disney in France, uh, I was, I think, like three years old, and we went to this uh, exhibit. Uh, I don't remember the name, but basically there was a, it was some kind of like overview of the future, and there was a, a very charismatic robot, you know, presenting, and I, I saw it, you know, from from the back uh, row or something, and, and thinking, oh my gosh, there's a actual robot, and he's guiding us, and people are paying attention to that robot. Oh my gosh, I didn't know there were these kind of entities in this world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was so, so impressed, and I thought, like, man, like, I'm sure, like, I will start meet, meeting robots, you know, all the time from now on, you know, maybe this is just the beginning. 
And I remember, like, when the event was uh, ending, that I asked my mom, like, whether we could go on stage and talk to the robot. And then she had to explain, well, I think these are, like, mechatronics. Uh, they're not... Uh, basically, it's like a prefabricated message and uh, uh, pre-recorded. You know, like, it's not the robot is coming, with the, coming up with those ideas on the fly. Um, and, like, for sure, there's, like, nobody, you know, in the robot, so to speak. It's, it's just kind of machinery. And... Um, I thought about it and I realized like, oh yeah, actually there is this uh, kind of dissociation in a sense, like things that can look like they are conscious that they have an interior life, oftentimes they don't and vice versa. You know, actually there's like things that, uh, you know, like a, a coma patient may actually have some degree of like mental life, um, but just not look like it at all, right? So you can kind of dissociate these two and then, um, the question really comes up which is like okay so what is the appropriate criteria that we should use in order to uh actually infer that you know like a particular system is conscious has an interior life and uh i mean very importantly i think that this debate has many many layers and there's kind of a popular culture kind of like layer which really comes down to something like <laughs> um like hey on the one hand like if the brain is really just an information processing system like doesn't that mean that like you know digital computers will eventually be conscious and then on the other hand you have you know people saying like yeah but machines cannot have feelings you know like a computer is cold and hard and made of silicon it doesn't have feelings you know that is the level of debate you know in popular popular culture and you see it in movies and cartoons and like you know fiction and uh pop writing and, and so on which is a I mean just barely scratching the surface and the thing that you will realize is that in a sense there's a bit of a kind of a, um, a meta contrarian uh, dynamic here in that like the the obvious idea you know that like hey like only humans are conscious is then kind of like challenged by some observations about for example um, that uh, you know like other animals may look different they have like different genes and so on but perhaps like they, they, they are conscious and kind of like that generalizes to okay like maybe machines could be conscious and then people come in like well uh there's the intentional stance and maybe you're just projecting that into the algorithms and then there's kind of another layer that twist you know turns it around and has like some arguments against it and uh but the thing is that nowadays in our culture really kind of the bucket ends at you know just like very smart people who are for the most part you know kind of uh, doing ai uh research because of all of the impressive results that are coming from that field is yeah basically what people pay attention to and by and large people in yeah the field of ai as well as like modern you know analytic philosophy uh by and large like the 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 main views tend to be uh essentially like functionalism computational theory of mind and causal structural theories which i'll i'll, I'll get into in a in a second um those are kind of a the lenses that are used in order to approach this question and yes, I mean, from, from those points of view, yeah, appropriately programmed digital computers can be conscious. And uh, that's the thing is like, this is a, a smart person view, you know, it's a, it, it's a result of kind of like a, a, an intricate debate. And that's where like, you know, the smart people are at, at this point in time, you know, 2021. And, uh, and definitely I want to respect and honor that, you know, because it actually takes quite a bit of you know intellectual sophistication to get to the point where eventually you know things such as like multiple realizability are like intuitive notions so yeah you live by and you use to interpret the world and 
you know, all the power to them. You know, that, that, that is like a sophisticated worldview. It's, as I said, it's a smart person to view, for sure. Um, but <laughs> it's wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong. Okay, so um, let me now go on to establish my credibility. Okay, so here's the thing, right? Like people who say uh, digital computers will never be conscious do tend to, for the most part, be kind of uh, empathizers as opposed to systematizers. And they will have arguments like computers cannot have feelings because, you know, feel, feelings are like warm and squishy, whereas, you know, computers like hard, cold silicon, you know, things like that. You know, that is the and 99.9% .9 of the cases when somebody says uh, that they think digital computers cannot be conscious, that's the sort of thing that they bring up. Um, so I understand the annoyance. I really do understand the annoyance when it comes to. Uh, people basically having strong opinions here without necessarily being able to justify them rationally and you know okay, so uh, why, why is it annoying because um, Okay, like when somebody says hey, let me present you my friend who's also interested in the same topics as you're that you're interested in and then it turns out that that friend is a yes, very interested in those topics B very opinionated and C ignorant about the debates, the classic debates, and the, cla the you know where the debate actually is at, interacting with people like that is actually very annoying, you know, because they they don't necessarily have a respect for the you know fine level of argumentation that underlies your current belief structure, you know, and if you want to in a sense engage with somebody's you know deeply held beliefs, you kind of do require to go over why they believe it in a sense like go into the nitty-gritty and understand like okay causally what is influencing your model of the world such that this actually makes a lot of sense and that's yeah something that i'll try to do today i, I should add a caveat that like you know this is such a huge debate that it would actually take me something like 10 hours to really go very deep into all of these topics so think of this video as like more of an overview uh, I will try to, you know, say meaningful, you know, novel, interesting things at the object level. But yeah, it's kind of an overview. If anybody's really interested in like any particular aspect of debate, please uh, write a comment. You know, I, I'm happy to compile those and eventually I'll make a video response. Okay, so uh, what kind of person I am? Um, I would say that I'm both a systematizer and an empathizer. Uh, I really have like kind of a a strong blend of the two but uh you know because i actually grew in a family of uh empathizers i mean my 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 core family they're you know humanities they're like mostly kind of like arts and um yeah humanities like sociology linguistics um i, I do have like scientists in my family but they're like a little bit more you know my grandfather was a scientist i have cousins and uncles but uh, my immediate family is like much more like empathizers and uh, from an early age, like there was this interesting contrast, you know, that like their their consensus would be slightly different than how I would approach things, partly because I would bring like such a strong systematizing uh, mindset to problems. So, uh, you know, when I was like six years old, for example, like I had, you know, decided that, that I wanted to be a physicist, mathematician and uh, an inventor, you know, and I was really, really curious about like big questions in, in philosophy and, and science. Um, you know, the cosmos and so on, like, you know, I, I was, yeah, a very nerdy, nerdy kid in, in that sense. 
Uh, and I would even yeah, define myself as like hyper philosophical <laughs> in the sense that um, I, I experience like intense, you could say like pangs of like existential wonder and uh, and uh, crisis sort of like just like not knowing what the hell is going on with the reality and like experience it, experiencing it as a consistent and persistent problem that needs to be solved. So, you know, in some sense, I may not actually be like, you know, super genius or, or something like that, but I do stick to these problems day and night. You know, I all the time <laughs> I'm munching on these problems. And uh, I do think like, yeah, basically the amount of hours that you put in on a particular question, especially difficult, you know, questions like in, in philosophy, it, it really makes a difference. You know, are you like a <laughs> 1000 hour hour or like a 10,000 hour and, you know, thinking about these problems? And I, th I think it matters. But um, also just as a kind of like background, you know, like um, my style from an early age has been like, OK, uh, take you know axioms very very seriously and see where they lead to and even if they lead to strange places bite the bullet because if you agree with the axioms you know you've got to agree with the conclusions and i remember for example when i was 80 years old i arrived all alone at the implication that determinism must be true you know based on basically principles that um hey like the laws of physics are like you know uh fully deterministic and river I, I didn't know about quantum mechanics at the time but like you know just newton's law it, it laws yeah basically they're like reversible and they're deterministic and if they're deterministic locally i arrived at the implication that it also must be the case globally and you know that from the moment there was any kind of information since the big bang everything has been entailed by the laws of physics and you know it was very crazy because i remember thinking this through uh, you know, just like logically and, and philosophically and then trying to communicate that to other people and They just didn't get it at all like and it was like very strange uh, I'd imagine it would have been a pretty strange contrast, you know, this 80 year old trying to explain it to You know the the the, the teacher uh, in elementary school or like, you know, the friends of my parents and then things like that and like I don't think they understood the argument. I think they, they generally thought um, Analyze, psychoanalyzed me, right? Like they would think, like, well, if this kid think that thinks that everything is determined, like maybe this kid is, you know, depressed. Is this kid like maybe thinking that things are too uh, routine? You know, there's not, not enough novelty. Like everything feels determined. Whereas, like, no, no, no. <laughs> I was like seriously making a philosophical argument, very much along the lines of like the arguments that previous philosophers did many years ago. You know, like uh, like Laplace, I believe, uh, actually presented a argument in favor of determinism that actually looked very much like it um and uh another example you know all you know it's kind of uh, i remember uh being uh shown the monty hall problem about like the three gates and like you know which one do you, you whether you choose the switch or not and uh uh these I, I must have been like also eight years old and i remember like spending like you know actually like a whole hour just thinking about it and then like reasoning through and yes concluding that you know you should actually switch um it was very counterintuitive to me but you know working through all of the possibilities and thinking carefully i realized yes actually switching makes sense and again like being confronted with for example talking to an actual uh math undergraduate um who was uh, mentoring me at the time um and like trying to convince him that actually you should you should switch and actually he he even though he was a math undergrad you know uh, he was trying to convince, you know, this 80-year-old kid that, uh, no, 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 like, the chances are the same, 50-50, 50-50. So I've had, like, a lot of experiences like that where, you know, <laughs> for whatever reason, <laughs> I was actually 
completely correct in my reasoning and just experienced like kind of this weird, uh, you know, resistance from people around me just based on intuitions that they just didn't follow this same aesthetic of actually taking seriously, you know, the principles and then biting the bullet when, you know, whatever comes up as a consequence. And that is actually the sort of vibe that you get in places like, you know, AI, AI conferences and, you know, like people who are like really smart nowadays, like the nerds have won, so to speak, you know, and, and in, in a sense, like, um, I, I recognize like, you know, as a kid, I, I inferred that, hey, if it is possible to create sentient robots, maybe even within my lifetime, like that is going to be the main plot point, you know, like this, this is just like so incredibly consequential. You have no idea. And I remember just talking to other people that, yeah, I mean, ultimately is like they didn't see the significance in that. Whereas, you know, if you go to a, yeah, like a AI conference or, or you know, uh, a Les Brown meetup or Slaystar Codex or all of those places, all of those wonderful places with very smart and systematizing nerds, they take the, you know, they take these you know super seriously and i love that that's fantastic you know that feeds my inner child my rebellious systematizer <laughs> being in a sea of empathizers who just don't get it okay so that is, that is quite great um maybe also <laughs> uh hopefully this doesn't sound too arrogant i mean actually uh i think uh it's a little bit braggy but it's the sort of thing that like actually people change their mind about uh, about you when you do explain this sort of thing, even though they say it may be arrogant. So, you know, also as a kid, like um, uh, 11 years old, 12 years old, I, <laughs> I had like this, uh, you know, hobby of basically creating societies online, um, like, you know, interesting societies. The first one I created was uh, community for intellectuals, scientists and philosophers. You know, I was like 11 years old and I put up a website <laughs> and like tried try to find the others, so to speak, like, where are the other, you know, hyper philosophical kids for me to, to talk to? And uh, truth be told, I actually got really lucky that like, there was a, a really, really smart, like, very awesome uh, friend in elementary school, like the two of us would actually understand each other, he understood the arguments for uh, determinism, even though we were nine years old. And, uh, you know, he's a good friend, uh, lifelong friendship. And, um, um, but it was just so difficult to find like, others you know <laughs> now now i look back and you know it's like maybe my strategies weren't really great and uh truth be told like nowadays with a uh, qri and uh and e even you guys who watch these videos like it actually feels like it, it is finding the others you know the people who actually kind of live at this intersection of, of uh, interests and you know combining kind of hyper systematizing thinking together with uh yeah basically focusing on what matters quote-unquote like identifying the the truly morally significant aspects of reality and then focusing on those and anyway that's like very rare and like i'm very happy i'm kind of finding the others <laughs> so welcome <laughs> welcome aboard um but but yeah i mean it was uh it was an uphill battle and like you know another strategy that i tried uh when i was maybe uh yeah 14 years old is i i literally founded a high iq society i created an iq test i learned about how to do uh the statistics of norming uh, a test uh, and uh, I was very, you know, it was my hobby. Like my hobby was downloading high range on with uh, unlimited time uh, IQ tests and just like spending a whole afternoon just like trying to figure that out, you know? And, uh, and remember I was, you know, I was like, I don't know, a teenager 
um, and like getting into these high IQ societies obviously meant for, for adults and you know like um, anyway like if anybody's interested in these like there is one really awesome uh, IQ test that I actually endorse as like really cool which is a Fori Tensum made by Andreas Morgensen or something like that a, a Finnish uh, guy who's interested in you know high range IQ tests and uh, that test is beautiful because um, they have they, there's no instructions um, they don't tell you what you're supposed to do it's just a bunch of like interesting shapes uh, they, there is an answer sheet and there is like the, 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 the test and like part of the test is figuring out like what you're supposed to do <laughs> that was such a good test I spent like at least like 30 hours trying to solve it and uh and i got into several high iq societies because of my score on that test <laughs> um, again it's a very odd pastime and i was just very driven to find other people i could philosophize with and i've got to be completely honest that the quality of people that i found in high iq societies was very disappointing when it comes to philosophy i mean like they were puzzle solvers and and for sure you could like come up with like cool puzzles and they would be very interested and you can you know you could gain status by making interesting puzzles <laughs> and that's great that's that's fun um but no were they interested in like you know consciousness or advancing the uh kind of like the the, the our field of understanding in that like no for the most part people who are in high iq societies are unfortunately compensating for one reason or another and uh yeah it's uh it's kind of sad often um again i, I have made like some some good friends from those communities um then i moved on to uh, I realized like, well, probably people not here necessarily. So how about like something like much more like formal and perhaps even more aligned with like mainstream. And, and that's what, yeah, I, I got into, uh, participating in math Olympiads and, and competitions in general. And I mean, just being very, very honest, like one of the main reasons I was very into like that kind of competition was so I could find the others basically okay, like maybe in the selection of, you know, the top 16, you know, uh, you know, the gold medalist of the math Olympiad uh, across the entire country, like maybe among them, we will find like some people who really have like interesting ideas that are worth discussing. And um, I did find that like, it was like more, like far more than average, for sure. Like, uh, when I got a gold medal in the in the Mexican National Math Olympiad, and got to basically hang out in like the the trainings for the selection for the international math Olympiad. that was like really fun like that that was a fun community but they weren't like philosophically like super talented they were just like like decent and like um i i also went to to one like international uh like in uh, uh in panama not the imo but like a, a caribbean uh one and like also there like i, I found it was kind of the same and uh uh, maybe I should mention like this is definitely like ego, but also you know yeah maybe worth worth sharing like um, I there's a reason I didn't go to the IMO which is like actually you know in, in the last year I participated in the Mexican Math Olympiad I actually ended up being in the seventh place well tied with the sixth place and then in the tie breaking <laughs> by uh, two points which of course I remember <laughs> very not uh, the opposite of dearly yeah uh, with by, by just two points. Um, uh he won and uh i was the seventh place and only the top six go to the international math olympiad but the thing is like i still had like two more years to participate and i'm pretty confident uh in those two years i would have actually gone to the imo um 
And my calibration is I would probably have gotten a bronze, a bronze medal with like a slim chance of a silver medal, given on you know how I was performing on, on those tests. Um, but uh, I chose to instead go to a United World College in Norway uh, because I got a scholarship for that. And in the final analysis, I think it, I, I made the right call. Like um, it, it, it was a different strategy of like finding the others. It's like, okay, like not necessarily the you know, absolute top people in like math specifically, uh, but kind of like, hey, like people who are like pretty holistic in their thinking and, and basically want to prevent, you know, wars <laughs> by uniting the world through, yeah, basically uh, education. And, uh, you know, the U UWC vibe is also really good. Uh, I, I endorse it for the most part. It's, it has its uh, limitations for sure. There's things it can't really process properly, but on the whole is a pretty good vibe. Um, but also it didn't turn out to be kind of the shelling point for like hyper philosophical kids that I, I had hoped. And not even, uh, as it turns out, like uh, Stanford, uh, when I uh, started my undergraduate degree, I had in my mind the hope, you know, that like everybody in my dorm was going to be like super interested in philosophy and <laughs> very curious about reality. And the truth was that they were like much more normal than I had anticipated. Um, but within uh, uh, university, within Stanford, uh, I ended up actually finding that, yeah, there were, you know, three, you know, the clusters of people that were where I could actually find to some extent the others. The first one was the symbolic systems program, uh, which is basically why I ended up study, studying, which is a, a cognitive science kind of makeshift program at Stanford and wonderful people there who are actually hyper philosophical and combine kind of interesting computer science and consciousness and AI, um, you know, uh, and that's great. Uh, the other one was <laughs> actually this uh, kind of very druggy house, the Enchanted Broccoli Forest. And like, literally, I think it was one of the couple places where like people would actually like be interested in psychedelics and like, not a, a, like most people at those houses were like just, you know, party animals, so to speak. But among the people who had interest in consciousness and interesting experiences to discuss, like, yeah, that was uh, actually a very big hub. And the last one was the Stanford Transhumanist Association, which I co-founded with uh, Faust the Whale. Uh, and that was a wonderful, wonderful call. Like, I'm very grateful to Faust the Whale for suggesting it because founding this association all of a sudden opened up basically my ability to connect with a lot of people that ended up being far more kind of these finding the others, people who, who have kind of that overlapping set of interests and yeah, basically, uh, that's kind of like really what got me very involved in kind of uh, the, the, the seeds of, you know, effective altruism and yeah, basically a, a bunch of like, you know, functionalist theories of, uh, of consciousness. Uh, I, I should say too that like, um, even like, for example, like uh, philosophy classes, like I was pretty disappointed in a sense that like, um, even most philosophy students, even graduate students in philosophy, actually, they didn't seem particularly hyper philosophical <laughs> in the relevant sense. Like it, it seemed like much more of a career or a day job rather than like yeah, an intense obsession to figure out what's true. Uh, okay, so uh, that and um, uh, I, I, I swear, like, you know, for many years, like literally the, the main topic I would bring up at like parties and pretty much any person person I would talk to would be like, you know, issues of personal identity and like in what ways like our common sense notion of identity is wrong and like how that influences like ethics and um, uh, ontology. 
the other one was uh, digital sentience because again I had like grasped that like if digital sentience is possible like that is going to be the main plot point of our you know of our of our lifetimes um, and what happened uh, well I met uh, David Pierce who I had read before uh, which was great but you know I hadn't like delved into his philosophy of mind and and it wasn't actually until we invited him to Stanford because of the Stanford Transhumanist Association um, that I got to talk with him one-on-one -on -one. and I've got to admit that like you know I respected him very highly because of all of his writings on you know drugs and like ethics and the hedonistic imperative and a bunch of stuff but like when he told basically when he told me that he thinks that digital computers will never be conscious I kind of slow like uh, uh, yeah just being very candid like that like slowly like no slightly you know kind of like recalibrates how smart I thought he was he's kind of like downwards he's like oh okay he's probably one <laughs> one of the people who falls for one of the you know bad arguments for like why digital computers cannot be conscious it's like it's okay it's okay I still like him <laughs> he's still right in like almost everything else but like you know it's fine not a, he doesn't have to be fine you know he doesn't have to be right about everything <laughs> but uh the joke was on me uh because uh after you know very long conversations and after meeting him like multiple times like uh for a total of like maybe 20 hours of uh, like one-on-one -on -one conversations eventually he changed my mind and uh i don't know it, maybe it was a little bit embarrassing to to me it was like I, you know I had like built up so much, you know, kind of like momentum into this worldview, basically a, a functionalist or a computational theory of mind account of consciousness. And so much of my, you know, personality, so much, many of my drives were towards, hey, what's going to happen when we build a digital computer? And all of a sudden that collapsed because he had actually really good arguments. <laughs> Uh, okay, so what are those arguments? Uh, yes, so uh, let's uh, get into that. Uh, one, one more, more thing is um, I, I also TA'd um, uh, basically, yeah, a philosophy of mind course uh, at Stanford. Um, and uh, yeah, I've got to say also that like, you know, have talked to so many people in the, you know, less wrong and effective altruism cluster. And I know their arguments, you know, I've, I've read a bunch of less wrong and uh, if it wasn't because of David Pierce, that would be, you know, what I would be advocating. And I think it would be basically the smart person view that I would be, <laughs> that I would be uh, pursuing. Um, but uh, the truth is a little bit more interesting than that, actually. So um, let's get into it. So first, bad arguments. You know, it is absolutely true that uh, when you try to convince somebody that digital computers can be conscious, they will say things such as, um, you know, you can simulate glucose, you can simulate a plant in, a, in your computer with software, but no matter how detailed that simulation is, it will always be ones and zeros. You never have an actual glucose molecule emerge out of that simulation. And I've got to say, that's a terrible argument against digital sentience. And it's almost embarrassing <laughs> when you hear somebody being so confident about an argument like that. Uh, the reason why it doesn't work is because the whole point of something like uh, computational theories of consciousness is that like, sure, like these patterns may not, you know, create a glucose molecule in kind of like our uh, level of abstraction, but 
relative to the other patterns that are going on in the simulation, if it plays functionally and causally the same role as a, uh, a glucose molecule, it is a glucose molecule within that simulation. And like now connecting that layer uh, with kind of like our basement reality layer might not be uh, trivial. There might be ways of doing it with, for example, like VR and like Neuralink implants and, and things like that, where actually you kind of end up interacting with something that is in a sense like just as real as, as uh, the things around you. Um, but uh, it's, it, it is very silly otherwise, you know, to kind of uh, say that, uh, uh, you know, like, you don't get like physical glucose molecules out of a simulation. Like that's a terrible argument. Uh, and, and like, like that, there is just so many like bad arguments. And I think, um, I mean, basically this uh, starts, yeah, basically the, 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 the part where I actually give you some kind of like important background frameworks so that we can actually make progress here. And then I will go over the classic examples and conclude with a kind of like the most up-to-date understanding that we have at QRI. So, um, Important background is, uh, first of all, uh, Mars levels of analysis, which is uh, David Marr, a cognitive scientist. Uh, he has a book called On Vision, which is one of the earliest works on the AI of machine vision. And uh, in the introduction, which is a wonderful, wonderful uh, piece, you know, if you, if you study psychology or, or, or cognitive science and you don't read <laughs> Mars levels of analysis, uh, you're really missing out on a very, very critical framework. Um, and it's kind of day and night between people who are grasp it and people who don't uh, when it comes to the clarity of the discussion. Okay, so th this framework is that you can analyze an information processing system uh, by dissecting into three layers of abstraction. The first one is essentially what it does, and Marr calls that the computational layer of abstraction, although most people would talk about it as the functional layer of abstraction. In other words, what is the input to output mapping of the system, and what is kind of the runtime complexity, uh, which you know differentiates two systems that maybe have the same input ma output mapping, but you know that runtime complexity is different. Yeah, from the outside, they have like different you know causal effects, and that matters. Um, then there is the uh, algorithmic layer of analysis, which is like not only the input and output, but also the internal ways in which the information is being handled. What are the internal representations? What are the precise algorithms? Uh, what kind of like data structures are you using? So that is the algorithmic layer of analysis. And finally, we have the implementation layer of analysis, which is uh, actually how it is built. And like one example here would be an abacus, um, you know, could be made of wood, it could be made of metal or something like that. But at the algorithmic level of analysis, they're the same. You know, you're, you may be doing the same algorithms. Um, but basically in this frame, uh, in the classical formulation, each layer under constrains the one underneath. That is to say, there are many ways of generating the same input-output function with the same random complexity with many different algorithms. Uh, basically, just knowing the input-output doesn't fully constrain what is actually going on under the hood, so to speak. And likewise, uh, you know, if, if you're given like pseudocode uh, for a particular algorithm, like that under constrains what is the physical implementation. So that also kind of like really matters. Um, uh, even though you may read like, okay, like to add or to multiply in an abacus, you, you know, do this particular pattern, um, this procedure, 
uh, that doesn't tell you whether the abacus is made of wood or metal. Okay, so uh, and 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 I think like for the most part, uh, most like pretty well informed smart people uh, around tend to basically segment these layers of abstraction and treat them in a piecemeal fashion. Um, I will add though, and this is very critical and actually is absolutely essential to solve you know the big problem here is that there is sometimes interaction between the layers of abstraction uh, because there are particular physical systems that essentially make some algorithms easier than others uh, with a, an extreme example is you know if you have access to quantum uh, mechanics you can basically do quantum computing algorithms that are specifically um, targeted uh, for you know these quantum mechanical phenomena and in that sense uh, the algorithm in you know actually does touch you know the implementation layer and like you know if you read kind of the pseudocode for a you know quantum computing algorithm and you don't know that quantum mechanics is a thing that algorithm doesn't make any sense you know you will say like okay but what about like this step you know you're claiming that this step you know does a factorization very efficiently but like how would you do that in practice and somebody has to tell you well actually use the the schrodinger wave function you know and okay uh, <laughs> in other words um, in some contexts, uh, there is actually ways in which the lower layers give rise to particular constraints on the higher layers. Um, and that is very important, and we will come back to that. But classically, they tend to be analyzed in a piecemeal fashion. And importantly, we can basically uh, describe different theories of consciousness in terms of at what layer of abstraction of Mars levels of analysis do they assign consciousness. Uh, there is what I call basically the the being uh, function divide that like different theories of consciousness will say that like hey everything above here is just what the algorithm in a sense well, what the consciousness kind of like looks like to the world and underneath is like what the consciousness is fundamentally okay so first of all we have functionalism and the thing is like people use the term functionalism in a number of different ways for the purpose of this video i'll describe it as uh, talking of consciousness as a function basically as doing a particular type of information processing and that is concerned with what is the input to output mapping and maybe even what is the runtime complexity of the of the system uh, here implemented <coughs> apologies um, so that would be functionalism then then we also have like computational theories of consciousness and they would say by and large that consciousness is happening at the algorithmic level of analysis which is to say that it's not only the input output is not only like what it does but also how it does it and like those internal representations are actually essential and without those internal representations and those in particular you know the consciousness would be different so they actually care about like what algorithms uh, are implementing the system um, then we have like causal structural theories for example like iit and those uh they're concerned with the computational layer, uh, basically with the algorithmic layer of analysis, but uh, they add additional constraints. I mean, for them, uh, you could say that they're kind of like at the uh, at the boundary between the implementation and the computational layer. So like for them, like, yes, particular algorithms have to be instantiated, but then the precise way those algorithms are instantiated also matters. Basically the information flow only gets quote unquote integrated when the precise causal structure is in place. Um, and finally, you have a physicalist theories of consciousness that they will say, 
consciousness is a thing rather than a process. And at QRI, that's what we actually advocate for, for physicalist theories. I know this is the underdog nowadays. <laughs> I'll just say, wait 20 years, <laughs> mark my words. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, okay, so like physicalism basically says, uh, the world is made of things, uh, actually, uh, you know, particles and fields. And particular configurations of those correspond to uh, instantaneous moments of experiences. And a particular structure of that, of those objects, uh, corresponds to actually what's going on at the, you know, when it comes to what is the information in the phenomenology of a given experience. Um, and, uh, I mean, first of all, physicalism fell out of favor for many reasons in philosophy. And the crazy thing is that I agree with those reasons. I actually agree with the criticisms that functionalists and computational theories, uh, theorists, uh, you know, provide against physicalism. One of them, for example, is epiphenomenalism, which is like, in what ways um, is the fact that, you know, like a, an embodied physical state uh, has consciousness matter from the point of view of evolution? Like, just because it has kind of like this additional la you know, label that says like, oh yeah, and this pattern, by the way, is also conscious. Not only it has this particular behavior, like, what does that add? You know, and, and that brings us, yeah, to the hard problem of consciousness, that if you can describe something in terms of form and function, um, where does the consciousness come into place uh, in here? You know, it, it, it seems kind of like really arbitrary and random. And that's a perfectly fair criticism. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll have a really good response uh, towards the end of this video. So now let's get on to the classical, classical problems. So first of all, um, you know, Chinese room uh, by John Searle, uh, where basically, uh, I don't need to go too much into detail because you guys probably know uh, this thought experiment, but basically he's saying that if you have a box or like a room where there's somebody inside with a rule book uh, that allows them to basically uh, take Chinese symbols, uh, do operations on them, and then return some other Chinese symbols, um, the person inside may like not know at all what they're doing, but then from kind of a system point of view, from outside, it seems like the box is actually smart. It actually has understanding of what is going on. And actually, I remember like in a, in a class on uh, natural language understanding, you know, in the AI, uh, uh, you know, component of the computer science department at Stanford, it was a, a graduate course. And I remember <laughs> the Chinese room was brought up and uh, I remember the, the, the entire room thought it was like, oh, these like silly, stupid philosophy, like, ah, when is philosophy good for anything? Let us just do the work. And basically they all like, by a very large margin, I think like the, the vast majority of people in that class and the professors, yeah, basically just assumed that, hey, if you have like a system that actually understands from a functional point of view, like you talk to it and it talks back and it passes the Turing test, that like, because that's such a hard problem, such a complicated, you know, information processing uh, that needs to happen with internal representations and a lot of like context brought into place and so on like that. Yes, of course, that has some like level of like minimal consciousness at the very least. Um, but here's the thing. Um, the Chinese room is made fun of, but actually I think in a completely unfair way. Why? Because substitute, you know, the person inside the Chinese room by a lookup table where like literally, you know, for any combination of symbols that you put in, it just looks up in that lookup table what symbols to return. So 
there there's literally no information about the content of the symbols in the operation that happens it's just a lookup operation so just from the point of view of the outside you know the input output mapping is clearly not enough because even you know within a computational theory of consciousness you know account and a lookup table simply doesn't have the internal representations needed right so uh, the Chinese room, even though the standard kind of uh, argument that Cyril presents is like, hey, like you'd never get semantics from syntax. Um, the point is like, you know, like standard responses by a computational theory of consciousness person would say, yes, but like enough, you know, complexity in the syntax actually gives rise to emergent semantics. And I think like that view can be defended to, to a large extent, but it still requires internal representations and a lookup table isn't it, you know, so really i think like the chinese room just to make it more stark really should be replaced with a lookup table and then you will see actually people reckoning with kind of this uh, this problem a very classic response that i get when i kind of extend the the chinese room in this way is that um the computation did happen and it was conscious but it was like before when you created the lookup table and like uh, sure like that's one argument but it still does mean that like you had maybe one conscious experience uh, that now kind of like is able to scale up its behavior in an unconscious fashion. So like you still have the issue that like every time you use the machine, you know, the, 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 the Chinese room, the machine, um, the lookup table, like you're not generating a new moment of experience. So like that alone, I think it's a, a very important part. And that kind of like, yeah, rules out in a sense, like theories of consciousness that just stay at the functional level, you know, because lookup tables can take care of that. So, um, uh, at the computational level, though, uh, it's a little bit more tricky. And here is where, yeah, basically the, um, uh, I actually require to explain what are the actual desiderata, like what is that we are trying to explain when we talk about consciousness. And an analogy here would be, you know, if you're trying to get to the moon, um, and if you have like a bunch of scientists, are like thinking about how to get into the moon, uh, how to, you know, take a person to the moon and back, you know, maybe that entire room of scientists like are aware of maybe like the, you know, the Newton's laws of motion, in which case um, they will probably be focusing a lot of their energy into like, okay, how do we achieve escape velocity? And like truth be told, achieving escape velocity is very important. You know, it's actually a subcomponent of going to, to the moon and back, but they're also not taking into account, hey, how do we actually seal the spaceship so that people can actually breathe inside, you know? If they're not thinking about it, because they're not aware that out, out there in, in space, there's no air, <laughs> you know, they're not actually solving the full problem. They're maybe solving a component of the problem. And the truth, though, is that in order to actually solve the problem, you need to take into account these constraints simultaneously, you know, because... Uh, there's a lot of things that could achieve escape velocity, but they do it at the cost of basically creating completely inhospitable conditions. And likewise, you know, there's many things that could seal the, you know, a spaceship, but just too fragile, cannot, you know, be pushed through. So you, you require all of that together. You also require like, what is the fuel that you need to get, you know, out of the moon as well, because it also has a gravity well, uh, you know, like gyroscopes in order to actually get back into the atmosphere in the proper angle you need to take into account all of that or you're not actually solving the problem the same with problems about uh, scientific theory of consciousness 
And I think like Mike Johnson in Principia Qualia, um, he has what I think is like the best frame here, which is that he has basically a decomposition of the problem of consciousness into eight sub problems. And the further claim that we, if we are able to actually solve these eight sub problems, it is in a sense a full solution to the hard problem of consciousness uh, with the caveat that we would still have to explain like why there is something rather than nothing, <laughs> which is a, yeah, an important aspect. But um, uh, a more kind of like succinct version of this is like David Pierce has these basically four sub problems that is the one that I tend to emphasize simply because it's like easy to communicate. But when I do actual research, you know, writing these uh, papers, um, uh, I, I, I go into much more detail, which is the eight sub problem of consciousness. Uh, but okay, so like, what are the four problems of consciousness that David Pierce uh, offers? First of all, any scientific theory of consciousness must be able to explain why consciousness exists to begin with. Like that's number one. <laughs> number two is it has to explain what is the relationship and the nature of all of the qualia values and varieties that we're acquainted with like in what way is color qualia and audio qualia related to each other what is that state space you know that that is a huge issue largely largely neglected at least as a as a as a complete you know question maybe there's like psychophysics about color but they're usually not connected with like <laughs> and what is the geometry of that state space and how does it relate to the geometry of you know audio and things like that but at qri that's a, a very big topic for us um, then you also have, you know, what is the causal structure of consciousness? In other words, like, how is it possible that we're even able to talk about consciousness? That if we were just, you know, algorithms processing information, why do we talk about this additional kind of like qualia rather than just talking about information processing per se? Of course, somebody like Daniel Dennett would say, like, actually, <laughs> uh, qualia is just a shorthand for information processing. You know, we disagree, obviously, but... Uh, but that's a very important thing that has to be addressed. Also, within that problem, you also have basically, why is it that evolution recruited bound states of consciousness for computation or for causal, you know, causal effects? And lastly, you have the binding problem. Like, how is it possible that, you know, 100 billion odd neurons spatially distributed and membrane bound, how can they simultaneously contribute to a unified experience? And that that is the thing that actually made me reconsider those like the binding problem discussions of the binding problem is essentially the the thing that convinced me out of yeah basically a functionalist or computational theory of mind uh understanding of consciousness and the the main thing is the a lot of functionalist and computational theories of mind people essentially they dismiss the binding problem they think of it as a non-issue uh for example somebody like daniel dennett might say that um, we tend to think that our experience is much more rich and bound than it actually is. Uh, he has like these examples in Consciousness Explained where like uh, his book where like you look at a paper wall and like there's one, there, there's like tessellated with Marilyn Monroe's and like how like there's these visual illusions where like maybe the detail of a lot of those Marilyn Monroe's is like missing, but you're kind of like, you look at one of them with a lot of detail and it gives you the impression that all of the other ones also have a lot of detail. And he says like, yeah, that's just kind of your brain, not even auto-completing it, but telling you or giving you the belief that you auto-completed it. it, but it's actually illusory, which is actually something I disagree with. I, I actually think that when your, your visual field is like auto-completing in a sense, those patterns, those patterns are really there in your visual field. That is qualia and it is very rich. It's just that 
the mathematical structure of it is actually something that is called mongrels. And mongrels, yeah, they don't look like the normal, you know, they don't look like objects. They're actually like these statistical textures. And they have a particular qualia, and it is very rich. Um, so generally speaking, um, in, in the world of functionalist and, and computational theories of consciousness, um, there is this general kind of dismissal of the binding problem, uh, where they will say something like, um, uh, you're only really attend to one thing at a time, but you have the impression that you attend to multiple things at, at once. And here, you know, it's super important to point out the difference between attention and awareness. And the thing is that, yes, people like Dennett and others who are eliminativists or reductionists about consciousness, they tend to essentially only focus on attention. And they think that that is what consciousness is, kind of like the ability to like focus on a particular aspect of your experience. But actually, your experience is composed simultaneously of an awareness field, which is massively parallel and has a massive amount of information but you don't remember it for the most part unless you attended to it because attending to things actually gives rise to a particular you know local feature binding where like you know uh to actually get a phase you require to attend to it because it requires the binding of let's say like the nose and the eyes and the mouth in the proper way and that requires attention and for the most part the only things you can report about your experience are the things you attended to but that does not mean in the least <laughs> that you didn't also have an awareness field. And that is actually massively bound. You have an entire kind of like bubble world <laughs> of experience on every given point in time, even though nominally you're only, you know, attending to something. And I ha I've noticed also that uh, this is particularly difficult to grasp for people who have uh, are on the spectrum, uh, uh, heavy or like Asperger's or mild autism, they, they find it really difficult actually to make the distinction between awareness and attention. And they tend to identify only with attention and kind of uh, consider awareness illusory. But yeah, no, I mean, I think you, you do require awareness. Basically, what is happening in the center point of your attention only makes sense within the context of the awareness field around you. And without that context, the meaning would be different. So actually, even the meaning of a symbol or something like that contains many pieces of information simultaneously. And it requires that simultaneous coexistence of information or the meaning would, wouldn't be there. So basically, what I have to say is that yes, Dennett, yes, we tend to think that our experience is more bound than it is. But even just any non-zero binding still requires a very, very good explanation. And the set of explanations that are thrown around in you know, cognitive science and philosophy of mind are completely dissatisfactory for the most part, uh, unsatisfactory. Uh, for example, um, oftentimes people say binding happens through synchrony, that basically synchronic activation of neurons kind of like binds together the features. But uh, why would that be the case? You know, right now there's like neurons that in my brain and in your brain are firing simultaneously, you know, but they're not coupled together. Uh, like why would just simultaneous firing actually bind, bind, uh, bind experience? Um, and, uh, you know, likewise, um, you know, somebody like Dennett, we will say very, very truthfully that there is no center point in the brain where all of the information converges. And the thing is like, even if there was, you know, like that center point would have like spatial, you know, a spatial uh, a depth, you know, it would have like spatial extension. 
And therefore, like, even no matter how tiny, you know, that point where the information gets concentrated, you would still have to explain how binding happens even within that space. So actually, you know, concentration of information wouldn't solve our problem. <laughs> it doesn't get solved because you still have spatial extension. So it's um, a bit more complicated than that. But, you know, somebody like Dennett or other eliminativists uh, and like Brian Tomasic and other people in our sphere, uh, Elias Ryutkowski, uh, Luke Melhauser, etc. They uh, essentially um, uh, throw the towel. Uh, basically, they give up and they say that, yeah, I mean, basically awareness is, consciousness is just kind of an internal representation of your attention or something like that. And that for, for, for that very reason, there's really no center point. Um, kind of like the unity of it is an illusion. It's part, like part of the content of the illusion is the unity of it. <laughs> Except that, of course, for it to be an illusion, you know, it has to be presented to you in a unitary way to begin with. So anyway, they have it backwards, but that's, that's fine. Um, uh, most importantly, though, uh, synchrony of activity is definitely not enough for binding for simple relativistic reasons, because there's no universal frame of reference. So whether two neurons are firing actually at the same time, and I would claim that like, if you want to use synchrony for like unity of experience, you need actual perfect synchrony. Why? Because what would it mean for things to be just partially overlappingly bound you know and and i mean that's a whole issue it's called neurological nihilism but yeah i mean basically if uh if a piece of you know a, a process or a physical system uh belongs to to an experience in a loose way you know in principle it could belong to more experience more more than one experience whereas um and likewise you, you have kind of like endless generation of consciousness because if you have like a system a and you append like something else to that system such that now you have kind of like system A prime, which is like system A plus that part. Uh, a lot of computational theories of consciousness would say that, you know, the consciousness that A alone was generating will continue to be there, except that now you also have A prime. And I don't know about you, but like, you know, this essentially means that <laughs> you get kind of this uh, combinatorial explosion of uh, actual experiences as you build up a system. And, you know, something like the multi-draft theory of consciousness or, yeah, Brian Tomasic's take on uh, eliminativism. Yeah, basically, that's what they're claiming, that there is no ground truth to what is the experience that you're having, because there's actually kind of this patchwork of like overlapping systems that are like loosely instantiating algorithms to various extents. <laughs> but there's like no kind of like on or off nature of like whether something is conscious or not. Now... On the other hand, how we think of it as at QRI is that no, actually there's discrete moments of experience and that those moments of experience, the degree of consciousness has to do in a sense with how much energy they have uh, and how much information. But, um, you know, no matter how tiny a speck of qualia is, it's still in some sense 100% conscious because it's 100% made of qualia. You know, I don't think there's any sense in which you could say something like yeah this is half nothing and half qualia <laughs> doesn't make any sense right it's like if something is qualia it's fully qualia um yeah uh so so that's kind of a, an issue and also uh yeah this kind of like endless multiplication of like observer moments as you complicate a system in, in a way that just doesn't add up whereas yeah if you associate consciousness with something like physical energy actually you know a lot of like physical preservation laws come into place and you cannot do weird consciousness exploiting 
consciousness multiplying exploits, like just adding a tiny component to a system and then you get like the previous system together with the new component and the new, you know, emergent uh, dual system. Um, uh, importantly, um, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll move on now to kind of like how we think about this. So how do you actually get something that is frame invariant? And here's where like actually connections with fundamental physics become very relevant because um, only once you take into account actually kind of like the four dimensional nature of space time um, and you take into account kind of the, 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 the entire uh, space at once, you see that, hey, reality is made of, in a sense, like bundles of energy. And the important thing is that uh, from a causal point of view, actually uh, having things that behave as units can have powerful evolutionary implications. So, um, okay, I'll just run through a couple things. So, uh, functions are observer dependent. Okay, so like, first of all, we think that what a system is doing um, is something that depends on how you interpret it. And basically, even if you're, a, you know, if you're a functionalist and you say that consciousness is a function, is taking, is like something that does a particular type of input-output mapping, um, that function as a whole doesn't exist. You know, for you to interpret this system as enacting that function, it requires you to, in a sense, take into account in your own mind all of the input at once and think of it as like a unit of information and then taking into account the entirety of the output at once and taking that, I I interpreting that as kind of like a unit of an output. But that is happening in your mind, you know, physically in the world and, you know, even from a computational point of view, that information is not a, a natural kind. You know, like the, the information that you fed into the system doesn't stand as a unit other than in your mind. Like in your mind is where that is ha has kind of this irreducible quality, but not physically and not computationally. So that makes really a functionalist, functionalist accounts of consciousness just not frame invariant. They're just so open to interpretation. Um, and no interpretation is like more true than, than any other. Uh, they're basically just like uh, being assessed in terms of the utility that they may function for you. <laughs> but uh, without that observer, really you know the function doesn't have a a, a frame invariant interpretation um another th very important thing is that um you you need a principled way in order to solve the the binding problem that also allows it to have causal implications um and like for example a, a lot of like kind of free energy principle approaches to consciousness um have the problem that dynamic systems don't have natural boundaries. I mean, like, again, like what you interpret to be something a dynamic system is actually up for debate. You know, it, it really depends on the particular reason, the particular way in which you're interpreting that system for it to actually have a, a boundary. I, I guess I should clarify that. So I talk about like the boundary problem and the binding problem. They're really two sides of the same coin. So if you start out with a universe that basically has uh, a bunch of particles, <laughs> and uh, forces between them. Uh, then the question is like, okay, how do sets of particles come together to form unified experiences? Uh, where does this kind of like quote-unquote strong emergence comes from? Uh, and basically, yeah, we claim that in that framework, you need a, an actual mechanism of action to get that to happen. Um, if you start out with everything being unified, and that is usually actually how we think about it at QRI, that like 
the universe is fundamentally unified. You have this universal wave function of quantum mechanics that whose behavior is governed by the Schrodinger equation. We believe in that. We think that's true. Um, and that wave function inherently works in a holistic fashion. You basically need to take into account the entirety of it in order to know how it evolves over time. And that kind of like fundamental unity then makes us ask the question, how do boundaries emerge such that like, you have a moment of experience and I have a moment of experience and we're different in a sense, moments of experience, or even within yourself over the course of a, of a second, you have many different moments of experiences. So how do those come about? So the question all of a sudden becomes like, okay, how, how do you get those divisions? And uh, I mean, being frank, uh, most of the researchers in this area um, that talk about, for example, consciousness as a field, they tend to emphasize that uh, field theories of consciousness solve the binding problem because you have these like underlying unity. Like if you claim that the, the a conscious experience is basically an excitation of the electromagnetic field, like uh, Susan Pocket or uh, uh, McFadden, uh, like in the semi basically conscious electromagnetic information theory of consciousness. Um, those academics uh, essentially, yeah, emphasize, hey, being a field, consciousness being a field solves the binding problem. What they don't tell you is that then you have the boundary problem, which is like, okay, but why only this patch of the field is actually what you are? And uh, we have a solution. We actually have a solution. And the answer is topological segmentation. Essentially, uh, if I, I've provided this metaphor before, but it's pretty helpful. Like if you have uh, in a way, uh, a balloon and, uh, and you think of the surface of the balloon as uh, representing basically the field of consciousness that would be the universe in this panpsychist interpretation, it's completely unified. And in that sense, you, you would be the entire field. Uh, so where do kind of like boundaries arise? Where do individual moments of experience arise? So, but then if let's say you twist it and maybe twisting it would be kind of like what the, you know, Schrodinger equation is doing to the, to the, to the wave function, to the field, uh, there's a precise moment where you get a pinch point, a topological segmentation. It's kind of like this collapsing of the surface. And here, in a sense, it provides a boundary where like all of a sudden you have all of this region of this field that um, the only way for you to go from one point in that region to the other one is to go through a pinch point, a one-dimensional collapsed, you know, compactified region of the space. And in this model, uh, actually, what we are, these moments of experience would be kind of these pinch points, except that, you know, maybe we are higher dimensional uh, in that sense. Um, sorry, I don't mean to sound whoop saying oh, we are higher dimensional beings or something like that. No, but I mean, the wave function <laughs> has like, uh, yeah, you know, 10 or 11 dimensions, depending on how, how you count. Um, but uh, yeah, most of those dimensions are extremely rolled up, uh, basically compactified. Uh, but basically, yeah, we are the wave function. We are the the universal fields of consciousness um uh that would be pretty high dimensional and like what the brain might be doing is basically creating a pinch in those fields such that now you have these compactified dimensions that have objective boundaries okay and the wonderful thing here is that postulating these objective boundaries actually solves a ton of philosophical problems uh in particular it actually addresses um, okay, so let's go through like David Pierce's like desiderata. So basically you have, um, why is 
you, you know, why does consciousness exist to begin with? Well, uh, everything is conscious. I mean, the, the fields of physics are fields of consciousness. In a sense, we are now kind of trading that question to the question of why is there something rather than nothing? <laughs> you know, why does consciousness, why is consciousness the thing that exists? And for that, I would refer you to my video of zero ontology, why there is something rather than nothing. So we've talked about that to a, to, to a great extent. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to solve it right here. Uh, the second one is, you know, what is the, the full range of Quilia values and varieties that we have uh, access to? And they would be, in a sense, uh, mapped on to different properties of the fields of physics. So, for example, color qualia might have to do with a curl of the electromagnetic field. Um, and it, I mean, in some sense, like fundamentally, what would actually exist is color qualia. And then color qualia behaves in a way that is consistent with basically the curl of the electromagnetic field behaving that way. So it's kind of like switching the, the ontology around. But yeah, in a sense, like I think uh, what qualia formalism states is that, yeah, essentially all of these different mathematical features of the way the fields of physics evolve will map onto particular qualia values and varieties. Then we have uh, where does the binding come from? And uh, yeah, the solution would be topological segmentation. Well, the boundary problem. Um, and, and I think that's really powerful. And in particular, it connects and solves the last one, which is where, what is the causal, what are the causal properties of consciousness? Like, why are we conscious to begin with? Why did evolution go through the trouble of selecting bound conscious experiences? Well, the reason is that actually having topological segments of the field gives you um, affordances at the computational level. And here is where it connects to, again, the interaction between the layers of analysis of Mars levels of analysis. Why? I mean, similar to how I was talking about how quantum computing basically uh, is a case where you're using uh, properties of the substrate in order to uh, instantiate particular algorithms so that that uh, interaction can happen. And in a sense, the substrate, the substrate properties constrain uh, or give rise to new algorithms, new kind classes of algorithms. Likewise, there's this whole field called hypercomputation, and in particular, field computing. It's something that, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of academics, for the most part, like not particularly uh, taken seriously for whatever reason, uh, or rather, um, they say these, and for some reason, it just doesn't uh, impact very much the field. But like, for example, like Freeman Dyson, uh, was very big into this, how like field computing might actually be kind of uh, the new, just as like how, yeah, basically the legacy of Turing is huge in the field of computing. Once we understand how to recruit fields for computation, essentially we will be transitioning from a paradigm of ones and zeros or digital computing to a paradigm where basically pictures, uh, entire, you know, excitations of fields are um, there's an algebra to them where you can combine them and interact them and they will do interesting information processing steps in a highly, highly efficient way because you're in a sense harnessing the massive parallelism where every point in the field is in a sense um, influencing how the rest of the field behaves. So, and there's a classic examples of like field behavior, for example, uh, how water tries to seek its own level. Uh, you can use that for a computation where basically the solution to a particular problem might be when water achieves level. But also like annealing more more generally, the icing problem, for example, like how do you find 
basically a, a, a constraint satisfaction problem solution with annealing uh, by like literally taking advantage of kind of um, uh, you know physical substrate properties where like because of the the integrated behavior of the field you're able to basically find solutions that maximize you know the, the satisfaction of constraints in a way that is more computationally efficient than you would be able to do just by you know discretize, discretizing the problem and kind of uh, analyzing it piecemeal in a modular fashion um, so you know actually from this point of view uh, it's almost kind of a the problem that we have <laughs> and a lot of mental illness you could say is not so much that like we're not able to put things together in our conscious mind is actually that like because the field starts out unified a lot of the issues that we have is imperfect modularization <laughs> of course there's like disorders where like you're too modularized um, like you, you can imagine like there's some people who are like just too 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 like compartmentalized and that's also a problem but yeah i don't know like from synesthesia to schizophrenia um to basically like what it's probably like to be a baby yeah basically super synesthetic experiences are kind of the default you know if you take a high dose of lsd like that it's kind of like yeah when like all the 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 fields are blending into each other and you have a a, a basically an uh uninterrupted flow of energy between them um that yeah it will mess up computation uh for the most part at least like you know you're not going to be able to fill out your taxes very effectively because that requires a lot of like modularization and you know working memory and compartmentalization but you're able to process other kinds of information in a more effective way like you know emotional processing or uh, social intelligence uh improving equanimity and things like that so like yeah basically there's computational trade-offs and my very 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 honest appreciation here is that as we start to understand in what ways uh consciousness is being used for its field behavior in a sense that will give rise to a completely new paradigm of intelligence uh that actually you know generalizes beyond yeah what david pierce would call the, the mind blind iq tests that <laughs> despite my you know personal interest in in that field and like you know i like you know solving solving puzzles and so on uh that's really just like scratching the surface of what intelligence can be because ultimately also intelligence has to do with whether you're able to focus on what's significant and what is significant is hugely contentious and of course i believe that what's significant has to do with hedonic tone and valence and you know eradicating suffering uh i almost think that a, a test of general intelligence is whether you can identify that as kind of a, one of the main plot points of reality <laughs> but yeah i mean the point is that holistic intelligence uh has not only to do with kind of like whether you're able you know to solve standard kind of like uh, uh iq puzzles type things but also whether you're able to recruit field behavior in new and novel interesting ways and uh i very much think that for example the the crazy things that you see on dmt are powerful demonstrations of how field behavior is actually driving is, is, is basically the driver of the computational horse power of the brain um and uh, yeah that's something for you to explore um i guess uh, i will i will end yeah basically by saying that um 
uh, a couple things like uh, resonance. We don't think that resonance is enough to solve the, the binding or, or boundary problem. I mean, it is very nice that like resonance in fields, it is a holistic behavior that could be recruited by natural selection. And we think that's a piece of the puzzle, but uh, resonance is more of a something that generates functional unity rather than like an actual deep ontological unification. Definitely not at the level of fundamental physics quite yet, but if we can demonstrate that resonance gives rise to topological segmentation, which is something that I'm currently looking into, and it has to do with the cohomology of electromagnetic field behavior, then yes, maybe electromagnetic resonance is actually the solution to the boundary problem, um, which is, yeah, I, I, I'll be very excited to, to share uh, the, the output of that research. Um, another thing is uh, in IIT uh, in particular, um, so this is kind of a technical footnote, but uh, uh, I, I do like that in IIT they take the binding problem very seriously, but they have a, a very strange solution, which is this minimal information partition, which is basically a way of identifying what is the um, temporal and spatial grain at which uh, integrated causality is happening to the largest extent. And there's like this quote by Giulio Tononi saying that like the, 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 where emergent causality is happening to the largest extent has the highest claim of existence, quote unquote. But here's the thing. All of the other integrated causality structures within the system that is being analyzed are still there. The thing that is saying that the minimal information partition is the one that is actually, you know, has the claim of existence is the theory. <laughs> but physically, they're still there. And that's like very different from like other mechanisms of action where you actually do eliminate everything but, for example, the shortest path, uh, as in like the extremas of physics. So. For example, when you, when you have like in physics, like the path of an electron or a photon, and you see that it always go through the shortest path in terms of like time it will take, it's a super weird behavior, right? Like that light always goes through the shortest path, almost as if it could like smell its path around and just go through the, the shortest path. It's super weird, right? Uh, and for a long time, this was a mystery, you know, the principle of least action. Um, but with quantum mechanics, uh, and in particular, like Feynman diagrams, we can understand this finally, which is that the reason why light goes through the shortest path is because it actually goes through every path at once. But all the paths that are, um, most of the paths cancel each other out, essentially, because um, very small differences in those paths essentially create very large differences in the phase uh, at which basically the electron arrives at the point of measuring. And uh, well, I recommend like Feynman's lectures on, on physics and quantum electrodynamics. But the point is that only paths that are like really close to the shortest paths or in some cases to the longest paths don't cancel each other out, which is very different than what is going on in IIT. Because in IIT is the theory that says that everything else can be neglected. In quantum mechanics, there's an actual mechanism of action that eliminates all the like lesser kind of realities, the, the paths that didn't matter. So when it comes to like solving the binding or the boundary problem, I think we have to look at, in a sense, frame invariant objective mechanisms that actually have causal implications. Now, uh, I, I guess I will end with like, yeah, I mean, basically uh, causal accounts for the binding problem, I don't think they work also because there's no uh, natural boundaries for, for causality. Like if you imagine two like big dominoes, for example, that fall on top of like another domino and pushes it, 
and maybe like they're precisely of, of the weight such that like only if only one of them were to fall on that domino it wouldn't actually tip over uh, basically you have in that situation the problem that um, uh, in a sense like there's irreducible causality right but the problem is that you cannot just say that it was the act of pushing these two dominoes that basically caused you know the big domino to fall because you can also go further back and say like well actually the further cause was me pushing it or further back you know all the way back to the big bang and like there's no actual boundary in which you can say like okay these are actually the causes and uh, everything before is something you can ignore so in reality causality works as a weighted network you know and a weighted network doesn't have strict boundaries and so you're not going to be able to solve the boundary problem with causality that's <laughs> basically a very big uh, sticking point with uh, iit in addition to like their solution to the boundary problem doesn't really add up because it doesn't actually have a mechanism of action for getting rid of the other you know irreducible uh, uh causal structures um whereas with integrated field behavior that has topological boundaries uh, you actually have emergent holistic information processing which is why evolution would have recruited it, it basically has appropriate causality um, it has appropriate yeah basically causal effects and it is objective in, in, a, in a way like the the binding there is something that any observer would agree on just as you know any observer would agree on the fact that there is a pinch point between these two um, regions of the field in, in, a, in a balloon um, and uh, I'll just conclude that this all basically comes to a head with uh, this whole idea that, for example, artificial neural networks are able to understand at this point in time. And the thing is that, you know, they're very impressive. And if you use like something like Deep Dream uh, or like feature visual visualization technologies, you can basically get the impression that like, hey, like this whole system, if it, you know, if you turn it into a generative system, you know, you could argue that is like conscious because he's like able to detect these high level patterns and it's in some sense integrating that information but i'll have to you know say very firmly <laughs> that that is like implicit integration is implicit information processing is not frame invariant it requires you to interpret that the system is doing that it's not you know happening on its own whereas uh how we model at qri basically a moment of experience is that yeah you are actually a resonance network and as long as that resonance network you know creates a topological pinch in in uh, the fields of physics then that resonance network is really kind of the pocket of energy that comprises your moment of experience and all of the layers of the hierarchy are in resonance meaning that when you see an object well we can see this object you know the parts of the resonant network that are representing the eyes are in resonance as well with the surrounding networks that are representing let's say the face and the same with the entire body and the object and then your associations with it and all of that is connected through a network of resonance and in that sense that is an actual glue that has actual causal effects and if you take something like lsd for example and you see the eye kind of like start to wiggle and you feel like oh shit like the <laughs> uh shoot the 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 eye um uh it's kind of like being uh disassembled you know like it's uh it's uh getting dissociated from the rest of the construct yeah that would be where basically the resonance network is failing there so like 
the things that usually are like attaching attaching the the eye to the rest of the face are failing and so you had kind of this disembodied eye and uh, and that matters and in a sense like when you have kind of these like di dissociated regions of the network uh, they're still globally bound they have to otherwise they would just actually blink out of your experience but they may be like more loosely bound in the sense that there's like fewer actual network uh, 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 edges that connect them um, they're still globally bound but like locally they may be dissociated from the common features that they're usually bound to and that has causal effects you know like uh, you you may take the wrong turn you know if you're driving or, or you may like you, you know fall for a particular visual illusion if you're not binding properly so like it has causal effects you know like the binding is not epiphenomenal you actually require this integrated binding in order to actually you know drive yourself in the world and uh, and and respond coherently so i will just end by saying that indeed if you want to go to the moon you need to take into account all of those you know constraints if you want to solve the hard problem of consciousness if you want to understand what valence is if you want to understand what's going on on psychedelics um you need to take into account all of the constraints that i laid out simultaneously or your solution will just be partial you know it will be something like yeah we will just like strap <laughs> a bunch of fireworks to this chair and hopefully it achieves escape velocity but you know it <laughs> out there in space there's no air so you will you will uh, suffocate likewise you know if you build a you know neural network in a digital computer like yeah sure there's some level of you know implicit information integration but because there's no binding there's no actual mechanism of action for binding whatever you create is just going to stay at the level of mind dust now i'm not saying that that's you know unintelligent you can have like a very intelligent non-sentient system but there's like a class of problems it's just not going to be, to be able to address in particular problems of introspection and field behavior um, and it's going to have some computational deficiencies relative to us but vice versa you know Field behavior is not optimal for <laughs> every kind of computation. So yeah, anyway, in the future, there's going to be a seamless integration between, you know, uh, globally bound experiences and, you know, digital computation, and they're going to be synergistic. But the part that is going to matter morally are going to be the integrated experiences. All right, well, this has been a little bit longer than usual, but I uh, hope uh, it was worth it. So thank you so much. And I'll talk to you at another time on another topic. Infinite bliss. Uh, take care.